0: Leader for March McClendon, and I also lead the Rise Insurance Professionals DI Committee. I'm joined here today with many of our DI Committee members for a coffee side chat with our guest, Emily Hawkins. Um, it's a pleasure to be here with you all today. A few housekeeping items before we get started. As always, a quick reminder to our listeners the views and opinions shared today during the off the record podcast are those of the authors. They do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of our employers. The content, any content provider um, or provided by our authors or bloggers are of their own opinion and it's not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual or anyone or anything. So as we mentioned earlier, joining us today is Emily Hawkins. Um, As a way of background, Emily leads a number of courses and provides individual career coaching designed to help identify the barriers that prevent individuals from knowing and achieving their purpose. Emily has worked in corporate America for over 15 years, Um, she has a supply chain degree from the University of Tennessee, a Georgia Tech MBA um, in global business, and a robbins Mendanes life coaching certification. Emily, is there anything else I missed in your introduction? No, you you got
1: it, you got it.
0: Perfect. Thank you you so much for joining us today, appreciate your time. Um, And for our listeners, Just by way of background, today's session is gonna be really focused on women in the industry. Could be the insurance industry or we may make some general comments about the success of women in corporate America in general. Um, But in particular, we'd like to focus on how women can continue to succeed and how we can again support them to succeed and be advocates for them to succeed as well. Um, And what we'd like to do for today's Coffee Side Chat, and there'll be a number of voices that you hear in today's podcast, is pose a number of scenarios to you, Emily, um, for your feedback and then have an open discussion to give our listeners tips and tricks on how to advocate and support their fellow uh, female peers. Does that sound like a plan? I love it. Let's do it. Perfect. Um, so our first scenario that we have is really focused on inclusion, right? So we have an individual contributor in an organization hears repeatedly that the organization supports inclusion, yet the only woman in the C-suite oversees human resources. Um, And I think that this is typical and something that we've all seen in the past. Um, The individual contributor is fearful of retribution to push for real change and to create a culture um, where we insist that more underrepresented groups are no longer underrepresented in the highest position of the organization. So I guess when you're that token woman in the C-suite and your job is HR and you're you're seeing this as an outsider and you wanna advocate for more women holding more ranks and positions in the C-suite, what types of tips and tricks would you give to our listeners? And have you actually um, seen this in your past experience as well?
1: Most definitely. I spent 15 years in a male-dominated field uh, supply chain. I like to say that when I started my own business and left the corporate world, I got off the pirate ship because it was it was brutal, but in a good way. I mean, there were definitely good things. Um, what I will say is something that Gandhi says, you know, be the change you wish to see. But here's the thing: an army of one can just come off as annoying, or you know, not seen as real. Or let me just use a you know air quotes high maintenance. I hate that term. Um, what I would say is it's important to be an investigator here. What I mean by that is I highly doubt that even knowing this woman is in the C-suite, that there are no other women in the organization or other diversities somewhere else. And what I really see here is all of those people that exist within that organization are ripe for promotion. So see those people, hear those people, see what their concerns are and understand what that is before just, you know, wanting to make this blanket statement about, you know, we don't have this thing, we need to do this thing. Don't make it a thing, if you will. Make it more, where do you see your career? Where would you like to be? I mean, that that HR person is actually the greatest resource and the greatest place for diversity to be because they see that there is none of that. And they want to fix that because guess what happens when we have diversity in a company? We actually make more money because we reach more diverse populations of people. And we actually see more sides to an issue. We're more sensitive to that. We create better products, more robust products. And in inviting those perspectives to different rooms, we're inviting higher revenues. So when you bring it like that, I think people are really, they, they speak with their pocketbooks. So. I really think it's about investigating. You know, first just asking some great questions of the people that you see. I don't care if they are, you know, individual contributor all the way to that C suite. Ask questions. You know, I would love to get to know you and how you got to to where you are in the organization. Could we grab lunch together? And then it just becomes this great conversation. Um, something else that's a really great thing is starting some sort of club. And I don't mean diverse club, right? Let, let's not call it that because that just screams, oh my God, they're going to you know, build signs at lunchtime and, and pick it outside. Um, I actually mean just business groups, networking opportunities within the company where everybody goes bowling or everybody picks a book and reads it. And that's just great knowledge. And you're going to see talent from all aspects of the organization jump into that. And you create a diverse group in and of itself. And you also learn very quickly, who are the outgoing people? Who are the ones that are actively wanting to learn? So that's just a great way to to bring people together and really, again, be that investigator because assumption is the root of all evil. I think when we assume things, nothing gets accomplished. And when we look at it from let's just ask some really great questions to understand better, we end up with better results and more people that want to get on board as well.
0: I think my follow up to that is how do you when you ask those questions like how Mm -hmm. do you how, how are you heard like I think as a. A token woman in a C suite, right, surrounded by a pool of men that are making decisions. A lot of times, like things are manslained or taken out of context, or um, if there's a work product that that individual has done, I've seen areas in which credit is taken, even though that individual probably did all of the work. And so, how, when you have an opinion in a group of individuals that are not like you, how do you make sure you're actually heard?
1: You know, a lot of it comes with body language. Uh, body language has a big, impact. Women typically sit in a meeting where their arms are folded. They make themselves small. Well, if you make yourself small, when you have a point, it's also going to be viewed as small. So what I recommend is mirroring what you see in the room because that is kind of level setting expectations and it's a a level of confidence. So I know this sounds really ridiculous because it's so simple, but it's really overlooked. Uh, Women, again, tend to make themselves small. And if you spread out, spread out, sit at the table. I think we all know, lean in, right? Sit at the table. But when you say something, look everyone directly in the eye. And I also think that we need to make sure we are not asking things or saying things in a question form. So, I was thinking, or see how that tone just, it elicits, it elicits mansplaining, it elicits more information. Whereas if I said, I believe, and I say my point, it doesn't leave a lot of room for that mansplaining. It might still happen. And I'm a huge fan of humor. I think it got me pretty darn far in my career if it's used well, uh, if somebody is going to disrespect you in a meeting, then why not just throw a little humor in there? It lightens the mood, and humor can only be used by smart people, and so it shows a level of smarts and savvy, and it shows I came to play. If you're not a humor person, please do not use this; it will not work. But you know, one of my favorites is you know getting interrupted in a meeting. Uh, I actually have said this, you know, you are not a dog, the conversation isn't a bone, please give me the floor back. And just being very to the point and upfront really makes a big difference. So, you know, read the room. If everyone is very direct in the room, then you come the same way. It's it's really about, you know, social norms and reading those cues.
0: I'm just gonna pause for a minute to see if anyone in the group has any sort of questions or comments or another follow-up scenario to, to throw at Emily.
1: I I guess a follow-up is so now we're all remote. So how do you how do you, you know, how do you sort of twerk that for
0: for the remote setting now that we're we're having these meetings from afar?
1: I believe that whoever organized the meeting, it is their place to have social norms put in place immediately. Because if we're sitting on this call, and let's say Heather tries to speak when I'm speaking, well, the audio cuts completely out. So you actually don't hear anyone. So I think it's incredibly important to lay expectations about if you want to speak when someone else is speaking, please use the hand raising thing because we will not hear anything that anyone says, and then it becomes an unproductive meaning for all of us. And all voices matter. So level setting those expectations is really key. And by the way, there's also nothing wrong with a talking stick. You can't use it virtually, but I've actually had grown men use a talking stick where there's a stick in the room and if you are not holding the stick, then you cannot speak. It works really well. It sounds ridiculous, but it does work um, because when there's a lot of passion and that's what all of it is, right? It's passion. Everybody's excited to have a voice in the solution and that can make people, you know, speak over one another. So I do think it's important that whoever organized the meeting and is their job before the meeting starts to talk to that. And then when they see it happen, even after they've said it, they need to nip it in the bud immediately.
0: That's good advice. I like it. I don't know that I could ever do the talking stick thing myself, but
1: that's that's some good advice. It works. It really does. How about, um, I think
0: sometimes in the insurance industry specifically, we see a lot of bro culture. How, how do you advise women to kind of break into that bro culture? There's not a lot of commonalities. Like, I don't know that we would get coffee together. I don't, what is the one piece of advice you would have to the young listeners that are um, listening to this podcast right now and and how to assimilate and succeed in that environment?
1: Well, I want to say that there's a culture wherever you go. You could work somewhere that was all women, and that's a culture. You can work somewhere that's all men, that's a culture. Um, you could work for a sports company, that's a culture. I think it's important. One of the things I've always done is I really don't say a lot when I start at an organization because I'm just learning those norms, right? I'm not not talking, but I'm just observing, And observation is key because you might find out this bro culture, you know, these other things about these people that they end up talking about. And then you fit in that way. I would never have anyone change who they are. Uh, When you show up as you is when amazing things happen. And by the way, gender and race and all these things fall by the wayside. When you're fully who you are, people stop viewing you as this you know, token, whatever. And that's really key. I've actually been a part of organizations. I remember when I was 20, it's about 25. And I got hired, was really excited about the opportunity. First day in the office, my boss is super nervous. And I do not understand why he's so nervous until I walk into my first staff meeting. And he stammers and says, I didn't want to tell you, but you're the only woman on the team. And I was like, oh, okay. I mean, like that doesn't affect anything to me. Uh, So I just was me. And the men were terrified of me for about two weeks. (laughs) And then they realized that I was funny and that I enjoyed the same spicy Mexican food that they did. And we would go to this one Mexican restaurant and joke and have a great time. And, you know, I put my, my pants on one leg at a time. And then it just became a non-issue. In fact, I became key contributor of the group that year. So it was just making it not an issue. I didn't go to work saying I am the only female, you know, with a big shirt that said that I just was me and I didn't make it an issue. And it, and then it was just like, wow, she's, Cool, if you will, just being me, you know, not being weird about things.
2: Yeah, Emily, uh, Jose de la Cruz here from uh, Travelers Insurance. So, part of the, the initial scenario made reference to in a situation like that where there's only one female, how can that kind of uh, observation be brought to the attention of higher ups to create more sensitivity? <clears throat> And one of the things that I have found in uh, helping others understand, and even myself managing through some of those situations, when I was the only Latino in the room right, is, as you indicated, your first few days there, you kind of keep quiet, observe. And when you're observing, you're looking for allies. Allies who either see the same thing you do what you find from the, what they've said and how, and how they talk may have an affinity for the same kind of sensitivity that you're trying to bring to the attention of others. And, and usually those allies hopefully will be influential people who are at a level where their voice matters, right? All of our voices should matter, especially in today's social environment that we are with, you know, within our workplaces. But that's not always the case, right? So share some thoughts and some tips, if you will, about creating that allyship with others to help you share perspectives of the change.
1: I love that. Uh, the main reason I love that is because how do you find an ally? It's usually by giving your gifts to others. And that could be, oh, I saw you're working on this report. I'd love to help out because I actually have a background in this, that, and the other, and I can help you out with that. I have 15 minutes, I can run that document, you know, I can, I can proofread it before you send it on to management, be of service to other people, being of service to others is really the game changer in all of this. When people see value in you, they want to share it with other people. Uh, As much as we like to think that we are not, you know, in a caste system, you know, uh, We sort of are still, but the difference is it's about who you know, right? So, if you, if I am somebody that's given you a lot of value, you want to share me with your friends and people you work with because it's going to make you look good. That's the whole point. And so, when we are in service to others, They want to share us around because it's going to make them look good. I know that sounds ridiculous, but it's true. And um, so really when you're saying those allies, who can I help? Who can I elevate in their role with my talent? And again, it takes away the fact that you're the minority, you're the, the only woman, whatever that might be in the room because you've just shown your value
3: Thank you. Hello, everyone, uh, and hello, Emily. This is uh, Brett Carter. I'm a managing director with the Jacobson Group, which is an executive search talent solutions firm dedicated to insurance. I love what everyone's saying about this uh, scenario. And I would just add, you know, um, sharing your gifts, sharing your values, sometimes that takes courage um, and it takes, it takes confidence. And so I, I like to always say, courage actually takes courage. You know, and so um, I I, but but if you don't do that, then I think uh, the, the team might miss out on something, but certainly you might be missing out on something. So I think something that you said, Emily, which is really important is, you know, have really having the courage to be your authentic self, especially in those situations and not having assumptions about anyone and also not allowing anyone to kind of put you in a box and make assumptions about you. When you have the courage to show up as your authentic self and share your gifts and talents, that's what you're doing. You're not allowing someone to put you into a little box that works for them, but maybe not for you, right? And, and that does take courage. It, it probably takes a lot of practice. You know, I know I've, I've been working on that my entire career um, from since day one. And uh, it's, it's something that I think we can all kind of just remember. Um, so I just wanted to kind of share that because the other thing is this. From a leadership standpoint, if you're not intentionally being inclusive, then you're doing the opposite, which is unintentionally being exclusive, right? And so that's kind of our default as human beings. So we have to be intentional when you're in this situation where you're the one of whatever it is, but you're the only one of that in the room. Um, there, you, you know, you, you got to try to be, you have to intentionally try to mitigate that situation if, if you can. So all the things that we're mentioning I think are really powerful uh, tools to help you achieve that.
0: Perfect, thanks. I think um, the next scenario we actually have is probably controversial because it talks about emotions in the workplace. I think. A lot of times women are stereotyped to be um, emotional, right? And I think in the workplace, crying or sadness is an emotion, but in my experience, anger is not. Because I think that if you look at how emotions are carried out in the workplace, you see also a lot of you know, shouting or loud voices being regarded as powerful or authoritative. Um, And crying really be looked at as weakness. So can you just talk a little bit about women and emotions in the workplace and how we should be thinking about that if we do want to succeed within our careers?
1: Yes. Um, There's no crying in baseball. I think we all know that quote. There's no crying in the workplace. It's terrible. I love that you actually said crying and sadness because when I cry, it rarely is because I'm sad. It's actually because I am pissed off. I am angry. I am frustrated. And the women that I know that I have seen cry at work, same thing. And what's interesting is you mentioned anger, right? Anger and frustration really are the same. It's just showing up differently. So throwing a chair, seems, you know, from a man, I mean, that's horrible, but, you know, that seems passionate, right? Whereas crying doesn't. And what I will tell you is I love what the military has in place, which I know this sounds crazy, but um, they have something they call embrace the suck. And I'm a huge fan of embracing the suck. In fact, when I was in the corporate world, I always told my team that we need to embrace the suck. And guess what? You can do it in five minutes and it clears your head and gives you better thoughts. Uh, It focuses you because you actually feel the emotion. So embracing the suck does not have to happen in front of other people. You can go to your car. uh, You can write an angry email. Please don't put anyone in the two in that email. Just write it and then throw it away. Uh, You can go throw something, again, not at people, outside. Um, It really makes a big difference. Go work out if your company has a gym. These are ways of embracing the suck that we don't talk about. We talk about crying and how that's, quote unquote weakness, but is it? Because if you actually feel that emotion back to that focus, it brings about that creativity that you need to solve the problem. So embracing the suck is incredibly important. Going into the bathroom and crying as well is really important. Now, should you throw a chair? Should you cry in front of other people? Should you do these things? No, but guess what? It happens. It's normal. And as soon as we normalize this, especially as leaders, that crying is OK, not every day, not every second, but taking that moment and saying, let's embrace this. Um, I used to have this rule with my team in the corporate world that I had a, a door to my office. Uh, and I would say, when this door is closed, you can blame the government. You can blame my boss. You can blame me. I don't care, you can say whatever you want, you can cry, you can scream or whatever for five minutes. And after that, we're gonna work on a solution. And so I made emotions okay. And because of that, people were willing to come in that room with me and have those hard conversations. Um, even two different men that worked for me. One, his uncle passed away and he wasn't able to get to that funeral because he didn't have money, he was you know, new to the workforce. And we sat in my office and we had a little memorial for him. And we talked about what this man did, how he affected his life. He cried, I can't not cry when somebody's crying. So I cried and his work productivity the rest of that week just blew me away. He just needed that embrace the suck moment. And it was okay. Who wouldn't be upset that their uncle passed away. And another gentleman, his dog died. And this was his family. This was his lifeline. And he was actually a remote worker that I had. So I did a very similar thing, but we did it over a Zoom meeting where we could talk. He shared pictures about the dog. He talked about how it was his best friend. Same thing happened. It was okay to have those emotions. We became the most productive group in the company. And there were three women on the team, about seven men. And there was no there's no crying in baseball, right? We all knew it, it was actually the key that unlocked our productivity. It was the key that made the biggest difference. But again, as I said there, there were no public displays of it. That's not necessarily appropriate, but having that person that you can go to in your workplace and have that below the line moment, you know, where you're, you're not feeling the best, is key back to what Jose was saying, finding those allies and being able to know that you can walk in that door and cry for a minute and it's okay because people respect you. That's really important. That's my very long-winded answer.
3: (laughs) I
0: have to say, I'm like still kind of even if I have like emotions, I'd be scared to cry in the bathroom, but for other people seeing you cry in the bathroom, right? I feel like rumor spread really quickly. And I wish that our workplace really did look at crying as an equal emotion to anger. And I feel like that's still just not there.
3: You, you know, uh, Pael, I, I agree with that. I mean, I think that um, Emily, you kind of said it, we need to normalize it. I mean, look, we're not robots. We're humans, all of us regardless of our gender. So we all have these emotions and we, we're always going to have them and they're going to be there in our homes, just like they are in the workplace. And so we need to normalize this. We need to have more emotionally intelligent leaders that help to uh, socialize it and, and, and make it a part of the, of the culture. And also, you know, we need to have leaders who embrace their vulnerabilities because, you know, I think, we're kind of shifting away from the days where, where leaders just rule with an iron fist. There's still some of that out there. Certainly there's some of that in the insurance industry. We, we, we've all seen it. But um, you know, I think we're, we're, we're moving to a place where we're embracing our vulnerabilities a little more. We're, we're a little more emotionally available to, to our teams and, and to our peers and our, and our colleagues. And I think these are all good things, but we, we do need to make it more normal in the workplace so that everyone benefits from it. Because right now, the, you know, there is a double standard. Uh, you know, th- there's a double standard. If a man does something, it's, it's seen differently as when a woman does the exact same thing. And if you're a person of color, you know, sometimes it's even m- more uh, uh, of a stigma you know, for you. And, and that sucks. That is not cool, but often that is the case. And so yeah, you know I think I'm getting a little long-winded here too, but this is something that we definitely need to change, and, and normalize.
1: Brad, I couldn't agree with you more. I want to follow up to what you said because uh, I like to take everything back to the brain, uh, which is ruling with an iron fist. That that makes me like viscerally like ooh, you know, like pit in my stomach because what that says to me is if I make a mistake, which is inevitable, I'm going to get fired, reprimanded, you know, you name it, you know? And so I better not make a mistake. Well, now I'm on pins and needles. I'm not doing my best work. And in fact, when people don't feel safe at work and they're ruled with those iron fists, they make more mistakes and they're actually less productive. So, (laughs) So as much as we like to think, that that's effective. It's actually the key to things falling apart. This happened with Boeing a few years ago when they made it very clear that they had deadlines to meet and they didn't care how they were gonna meet them and meetings became who did this and very much ruling with the iron fist. And unfortunately they had many plane crashes that year for that very reason. I don't know about you, but I want Boeing to be a safe place to work because I fly on planes like the rest of us. But all of us need that. So emotional safety is as important. And to not feel that you can make a mistake and then it's, you know, ruled that way, it just, it causes bigger issues.
3: Yeah, you know, and it's an impossible standard that no one lives up to. I mean, nobody bats a thousand. Everybody makes mistakes. Everyone, every single person. Right. And so that's just, um, the, you know, I won't say any names here, but in the eighties and maybe in the nineties, there was a ton of books by lots of these leaders who wrote stuff on leadership. And they were at the time really, you know, popular and, and renowned. Um, but the now, you know, 20, 30 years later, you go back and look at some of these books and, you know, some of the concepts in there, you're like, no, that's actually not how I would approach it, or that's not the most effective way because um, that, that's not the most inclusive way to get the best out of uh, out of the team. And so I, I do, uh, I agree with what, everything you just said, Emily. And, uh, but I, you know, I think it takes more conversations like this to help get that message to everyone, you know, who needs to hear it.
0: Um, I think a lot rides on the next generation, I guess, <laughs> but, uh, moving on to the next scenario. So Faith, I think this one was yours. Like, how do we combat inclusivity, feeling um, the reversal of that, which basically drills down to, there will be times when we're providing access for opportunities for women and minority groups. Um, and that will feel like an ousting or a closure of the doors for folks that have traditionally held those positions. So how do organizations and senior level executives create pathways to equity and inclusion that do not pit employees against one another or build resentment.
1: Okay, well this has been happening for years with women because if there's only one seat at the table, um, Faith, I will cut you for that spot, right? So like we've That's already been so doing this. Yes, we've been doing this for wit- to women for years and minorities, right? So to say that there's only a few seats at the table is just bad anyway. That is a scarcity mentality And what we're missing, what I believe we're missing here is the richness that we can create with more diversity that actually will increase jobs. It will increase the size of organizations because we'll realize, oh my gosh, we're only solving part of the problem. We need other people and other groups and other ideas. It's all about understanding that. And actually um, there's this great documentary on Netflix called uh, This Changes Everything. It was uh, in 2018 is when it came out, but I only saw it recently. And um, John Landgraf, he's the CEO of F- FX, the channel FX um, was called out in 2014, 2015 for not having enough diversity. Like it got a big fat F on diversity. Um, basically everyone that was directing uh, episodes and all of that, they were all white men. And he said, he took major offense to this. Rather than taking offense and just saying that's not happening, he said, I'm going to change that. And he even admits in this documentary that his biggest fear was that the quality of their entertainment was going to go down. And that is not at all what happened. In fact, they had huge success by offering other voices to come to the table that, by the way, employed more people, and many of those people were probably white men, so it was okay. Um, and at the end of the day, it created products and series and things that actually reached more audiences. So I find it fascinating when we say, "Well, if we let everyone in, then we're taking away from the people that are already there." What? I just don't. I just don't think that's I I think it's easy to say, sitting in a seat where I have privilege, you know, I am a white woman, so I have white privilege. But by inviting other minorities to the table, I see it as an opportunity to learn and grow myself and create a better world for those kids that we're talking about that are going to potentially solve things. But we have to show them, right? We have to show them how to do that. And one of those ways is everyone's welcome. All ideas are welcome. And only then are we gonna create companies that you know we move away from the iron fist. We move away from there's only one great idea. No, there's a thousand great ideas and there's a thousand ways to do it. And um, all those voices matter.
3: I, I do wanna just chime in really quickly because I think this is a really good scenario and a huge one that we'll talk about for a long time. But um, there's a saying that equity feels like oppression to those accustomed to privilege, and I think this is this, this applies here because, um, you know, and, and when equity, you know, just having fairness, just having things be, you know, fair, not necessarily equal, but but fair given the situation, um, that can feel like oppression or like you're taking something away from someone. So I think people's defenses rise up immediately. And, 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 and the common you know, uh, uh, actualization of those defenses are that, you know, hey, wait, wait, what's gonna happen if you're, it, you know, what's gonna happen to me and everybody else if you're taking something away from me? Or will the quality of our work product go down? This is a huge myth that we need to dispel right away. I deal with this all the time in, in the talent acquisition space which is that, you know, do we have to sacrifice quality in order to have diversity or inclusion? And the answer is absolutely not. I mean, it's, it's, it's uh, ridiculous to suggest otherwise, in my opinion. Um, but you know, like you said, Emily, we're not taking anything away from the table, we're adding seats to the table, okay? We're adding seats to the table and that's gonna help everyone. That's gonna help the entire organization, the t- entire team, the entire situation. And so, uh, you don't have to, uh, you don't really have to be concerned or worried about that, but you, but we have to help people get there. So we have to spend a lot of time socializing just that, like, Hey, here's what this means for you. Okay. We're, and we're going to need your help with this. You're a part of this. We're not excluding you from helping us bring more tables to this or bring more chairs to this table. Right. So um, I, I love that this scenario. I think it's one that really we really need to talk through uh, even more inside our organizations and it's something that you know happen, happens a lot. but um, we got to dispel these myths just like you said, Emily. I mean you know we just and, and you only get to do that by, by talking about it.
1: Well, and I, I'm a big analogy person. Uh, one of my employees used to call me analogy Emily. So forgive me for this. but you know, I, I can't help but think of Blackberry, or candles. Do we want to be BlackBerry? Do we want to be candles? What I mean by that is BlackBerry saw that Apple was coming and Apple's biggest differentiator was that it was going to offer surfing on the the web, which is just hilarious when you think about it now. And BlackBerry said, we can't offer that because it's going to drain batteries on phones and nobody's going to use it anyway. So we're going to stand firm on not offering that because nobody wants it. And that was the nail in their coffin, right? But what about candles? We don't talk about candles a lot. There was this thing many years ago called electricity. And it came in and candles and the candle industry had an opportunity to say, oh my God, we are out of business. You know what they did? They rebranded. When you think of a candle, don't you think luxury? Don't you think romance? Don't you think you know soothing it's so different. We look at a candle and we say, of course we have candles in our home. They're wonderful versus I don't own a Blackberry anymore. I did at one point, but now it's just a hunk of junk. And I think if we look at this as an opportunity to just reinvent ourselves and become so much more than we even thought we could, that's really the key here, I think.
0: Feel bamboozled by the candle industry, based on that analogy. But I love <laughs> the candles that I have, and I will now be returning them.
1: <laughs> no, no, light more candles. <laughs> I mean, I think what Emily is saying, and hi, this is Faith Mason. I'm the senior manager for Comcast NBC Universal. I think what Emily is saying is that there's room for everyone at the table, right? There's, and that's the beauty of diversity. Uh, and and to Brett's point, I do think this conversation about how equity is being pushed, will it does build a little bit of resentment because people are used to what they're used to. And I guess my question to you, Emily, is how do we kind of upcoming, folks will call us upcoming rising stars, right? Uh, how, how do we combat that when we're sitting with colleagues who just legitimately think we're stealing their space? Outperform them. So that could already be happening, (laughs) right? (laughs) Exactly. It's really easy to lean on gender, ethnicity, all the things when you're outperforming others. Like that is what they'll say. Like, oh, that's a token spot. Mm, Check the scoreboard as my husband would say. You know, um, when you outperform, it really quiets that. Um, And that's really what it's all about. Um, It's just showing up every day. With your a-game and that it's not really up to all of us to have the conversation to make everyone else feel comfortable right but at the same time you're not going to you know back to wearing the shirt thing of you know equality for all or something every single day then that's really going to turn people off one thing i really want to make abundantly clear here this specific conversation The thing that divides us the most is the use of shame. If we shame people, then the conversation dies. Because if I said shame on you, Faith, don't you automatically go into defense mode? I do. And I'm like, I am going to defend my point. No shame on me. I'm not going to feel shame about that. Whereas instead, if I come to it as, you know, how can I help you? Back to the helper. Back to how can i elevate you you know when we go back to love when we go back to giving it's really hard to be mad at people for that it's really really hard and if they continue that way you just keep keep being who you are which is a game performer giver lover that's what you focus on
3: i think that's great and it's hard not to use a sports analogy here. Uh, check the scoreboard, you know, and it, just love that because um, I immediately think about any any sports team that I, I've been on, and you know, you always have people who will wonder, you know, why is that person in that spot, or why are they starting, or doing this. But if you outperform them and you show it all on the field or the court or whatever it is, um, and 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 also you're helping the team because that that's important to relate that back to the business world. You're helping the team, you're helping everyone uh, succeed. And if you're consistent in that, and just know, regardless of what is said or, or done in front of you or behind your back, you're just consistent in your approach to that, uh, eventually, not always, but eventually, a lot of that stuff should kind of work itself out when, they, when people know that you're, you're just there to do your job as best you can, probably better than most, And that they can trust that that's what you're going to do. You know, a lot of that stuff kind of works itself out. Again, not always, you know, because we're not all just great flowery people that just want to love and hug each other. Unfortunately, that's not the way the world works. But if we can, and we can only control ourselves. So if we can, um, you know, be consistent with our values and how we show up every day and authentic to that, I think good, usually good things happen.
1: I agree. And I also think that we are looking at this and forgetting that we're all farmers in a way, you know, farmers plant seeds, and then they don't go harvest that same day. Right? It's something that happens over time. And patience is so important here. It's not, well, I was nice to that person yesterday. It is, I need to continuously show what's possible. And it's not easy. It's not something that, you know, again, we're, we're great at every single day because we're all human, but the true definition of failing is stopping something. So if you stop showing up, if you stop doing something, only then have you failed. So keep going, just keep going, keep having those conversations and being kind to other people and planting those seeds because you never know when that harvest is going to hit. So that's just my piece of advice there.
0: I love it. Thank you for sharing those comments. And I know we only have 10 minutes to the top of the hour. So um, I think one of the last scenarios that we have listed here was more about supporting others. So in terms of just, you talked about making things economically advantageous in order to drive change. And sometimes we already have vendor relationships, supplier relationships that are economically advantageous to the organization in which they want to continue some of those relationships. And when we're pushing or advocating for change with women-owned businesses, minority-owned businesses, and trying to diversify um, those relationships, what piece of advice would you give to you know the the newcomers or the individuals listening to this podcast to really open up more diverse uh, vendors to support the businesses.
1: So you might've thought my candle thing blew your mind. I'm about to look even (laughs) (laughs) further. With, we do not make decisions, the majority of our decisions from the logical side of our brain. In fact, we make it from the limbic system. The limbic system is where our emotions are housed. A really great example of this is whoever is a significant other in your life, why are you with that person? It's not because of the height. It's not because of their weight or what church they do or do not attend or something like that. And if it is, that relationship is doomed to fail. It's how they make you feel. And if you look at those candles, uh, you know anything in your home, whatever you purchased, it's because of the way it made you feel. So while all companies are dollars and cents, I know this too. I run a business myself, but I run a business on emotion as well and about how I make others feel. And so when we bring in these discussions and we start talking about bringing in, you know minority businesses, women owned businesses, LGBTQ any of these things, what is the feeling that we are trying to emit here, emote? It's that all businesses matter and it's also what unique product um, aspect could that business offer to our business? It's not always an economical decision. It's a decision from the heart. And sometimes we forget this, but here's the other thing about small businesses. Usually it's better quality. The reason they're more expensive is because they don't have economies of scale yet. They don't have the large order that your company could potentially get them that will actually make them in the running with these larger organizations from an economic standpoint. So chicken or the egg, right? So I I like to go with my heart and say, is this the right move to move businesses forward and to show what's possible in the marketplace? That's really what I think needs to happen.
0: That's really good advice. Thank you. Oh, no, just turn it to the individuals on the line to see if we have any sort of last minute comments or scenarios to throw Emily's way. Otherwise, I'm um, happy to wrap up the podcast.
3: The, the one thing I would just say, uh, just given that last scenario is um, if, you're, if you're an organization or, or a firm that has um, you know, some type of DEI strategy, or even if you're at the very beginning of formulating a DEI strategy um, and you're doing these great things around talent, and development of employees, and maybe you have some resource groups and things of that nature. Supplier diversity is gonna be on that continuum somewhere. So if you're doing one part and you're not really focused on any other parts, are you really doing everything that you could be doing or something that's gonna be sustainable? And do you think that maybe when you're trying to attract diverse talent into your organization, but then they see that diversity doesn't really show up in any other, aspect of the business or the organization or with the suppliers or partners that you use that that might make a difference um because it will okay and so i just want to add that supplier diversity does need to be a part of your full diversity equity and inclusion strategy at at some point understanding that you have to start somewhere and then you'll work your way you know you know through the process but um, just wanted to
2: throw that out there. Yeah, and I'd like to add, like in, in closing, uh, Emily, what I understood throughout some common things that I, I understood through your through your responses to our scenarios is, um, I would recommend that our audience look up servant leadership and the concepts and principles behind behind that. Uh, I learned about servant leadership from my uh, single parent mother who raised me. And she was the epitome of that in terms of trying to balance, uh, you know, raising me and two other uh, siblings, just giving back to the community so that others can move forward, right? Uh, so that's one suggestion uh, because that kind of ran as a common theme through your responses. Uh, the other thing that ran as a common theme is this whole concept of effecting change. And, and two points there. One is, uh, to effect change, you're really engaged in a marathon, not a sprint. And the bigger the organization, the longer the sprint's gonna be because it's, a, it's, it's tough to effect change with big organizations. Like for example, uh, the one I work at and several of us work at that have 30, 40,000 employees across the globe. And so when you understand that you're in a marathon, then like a, a marathon runner, you have to learn to develop a rhythm a rhythm that's gonna sustain you throughout this marathon that you're gonna find yourself on. So you have to understand the rhythm behind how things work at your organization. And along the way, identify some of those allies that can help you be of service to others so that your voice when you speak certainly gets heard and and get paid attention to. So, So those are just some of the common things that I heard from your responses.
1: I'm so glad that's what you heard. Amen. Yes.
0: <laughs> I'll just add in closing. Um, obviously, Emily's
1: a great human being to talk with. Uh, really enjoyed, you know, all the advice that you've given uh, to all of us and also to me on my personal journey. Um, and sharing your gifts and being your authentic self, I felt like that really hit home to me, um, especially for women in the workplace. You know, just just be yourself, um, and and all that stuff will shine through. So. Um, you know, it's something I'm gonna carry with me each day now, a little bit more. <laughs> I'm so glad. I'm so glad. The world needs more Heathers, that's for sure. Le-
0: Sorry, go ahead, Jose. I'm
2: uh, just trying to hit, find my uh, unmute button to say amen to that about Heather. <laughs>
0: Well, thank you so much, Emily, for joining us. This has been wonderful. I think our listeners have learned a lot of good tips and tricks to support um, and advocate for women in the workplace. And hopefully with all of us driving that change within our various organizations, we can get to a better place for tomorrow. So appreciate the time. Appreciate all the suggestions. And of course, to all the listeners, if you guys have any questions, um, feel free to reach out or post questions on our um, RISE website. And we're happy to get back to you uh, in discussing with
1: Emily. So thank you. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And if anybody wants to learn more, they can always go to Emily Hawkins, the number four, the letter U.com.